Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Bruce Ackerman, welcome to our Legally Speaking series. Well, thanks for having me. I'm ple it's a pleasure to be here. Your latest book is entitled The Decline and Fall of the American Republic. This is not a happy book. Uh, you're talking about uh, the modern presidency and how uh, it has uh, become dangerously powerful. And, and but, but I guess before though, I, I, we, we, we start talking about the presidency, I, I want to ask you a, a broader question, and that is, given that your title has something of a Gibbon-esque ring to it, I'm wondering if you see compelling similarities uh, between where the United States is right now and where, say, ancient Rome was during the waning days of its republic. Well. Uh, uh, the, on, one, on the one hand, I don't buy into the thought of uh, pervasive social decadence in America. Uh, I am not a gloom and doomer so far as um, that's concerned. I think that uh, Americans are uh, more educated, more dynamic, uh, uh, more creative, more equal uh, in many respects than they've ever been before. Um, so I don't take uh, a, uh, a dark view of American society, but I do think that there is a parallel uh, 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 with the Roman Empire. Um, uh, the uh, Americans began, uh, the American Republic begins uh, uh, on the fringe of civilization, just as Rome did. Mm -hmm. uh, the um, uh, it begins uh, as a, uh, an anti-bureaucratic state. Uh, when Frederick the Great in, uh, in Prussia is already declaring himself the first civil servant of the state. Uh, the um, uh, f uh, American Republic at the time it moves to Washington, D.C., had uh, 2,500 officials. Um, the large majority being customs uh, people. Um, the, uh, the idea of a bureaucratic authority, the idea of having a major standing army and the like that we take for granted today uh, would have struck all of these people as a recipe for the decline and fall of the American Republic. Mm -hmm. That's why I want to begin uh, uh, my uh, uh, constitutional work um, not with this kind of um, idolatrous bowing down to the founders. Um, it's another similarity uh, to uh, the uh, late Roman Republic and uh, early empire that suddenly there is this, you know, myth of greatness at the founding and that we have uh, fulfilled their ideals. The first task of constitutional law is diagnosis of the way America is actually governed today. And then the second task is to say, what about our great constitutional values? How can we preserve those? And the, the, uh, uh, and the uh, challenge is to look in a sort of steely-eyed way, not Republican, not Democrat, about where we are right now. 
Mm -hmm. um, so the challenge for Rome was how do you maintain a republic when you have an empire to run. Yes. Is that, in essence, our challenge? Well, you know, the word empire is a melodramatic word. Um, I'd say that uh, the challenge for us is how do we retain a republic with an enormous military establishment, number one. How do we retain a republic in uh, with a presidency that has no relationship to George Washington's. George Washington was a revolutionary hero. He was sort of like uh, Nelson Mandela, mm. Charles de Gaulle. He uh, was uh, 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 a, uh, a, a Republican general <laughs> uh, who uh, uh, ran a, uh, an insurgency but didn't take the path of dictatorship, military dictatorship, as so many insurgents of this kind do. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, he didn't get elected on a platform. Mm -hmm. He got elected on character. That is to say that he went back to... Um, this was before the time when parties Completely had right. Yeah. Completely right. And it, so what happens in... Um, uh, the, in the revolution of the presidency, which begins in uh, 1800, and I wrote a book about this called The Failure of the Founding Fathers. The yes. failure is they didn't anticipate how parties suddenly would transform the presidency into an office with a mandate from the people. Mm -hmm. um, and in the cases of Jefferson, Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, his mandate generated the Civil War. Um, tiny mandate. 30, tiny mandate. Completely right. Completely right. Be why? How did that happen? Is because they, the founders didn't design the selection mechanism for a party system. Right. You right. see. Um, then we have William Jennings Bryan, who loses. But nonetheless, in, so by the time we get into the 20th century, the, uh, the notion that the presidency speaks for the people, something that the founders tried desperately mm -hmm. to make impossible, they knew that uh, this kind of plebiscitary presidency was sort of like Julius Caesar. <laughs> Uh, they thought a lot about Rome because, of course, there were no republics of a significance at the time of the founding. Uh, they wanted to avoid uh, Cromwell. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, but a vocabulary, despite their best efforts to sort of defuse the presidency with his electoral college and all this, um, uh, the presidency is this institution with a mandate from the people. Woodrow Wilson. Um, the, uh, but, of course, he is defeated in his dream of the Treaty of Versailles. Then we have Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who successfully uh, and really founds the modern republic. Um, and Ronald Reagan, who is the last president of the United States, who uses the office to put on the table a new constitutional agenda. However, um, what's also happened is the transformation of the party system uh, and the transformation of the media system. So the, uh, and the, this and many of the other changes I'll be pointing to really only begins uh, in the 70s and since Richard Nixon and is only with um, 
Bill Clinton and George Bush and Obama really kicking into high style. Do, do, do you think that it's our place in the world that has led to this dangerous, powerful presidency? Or is it the other way around? What's the chicken here and what's the egg? I think there are two things happening. Um, you know, we were uh, pretty much a pipsqueak at the time of the Civil War. And yet we already see the seeds of what I call a movement party presidency, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. We were not a great world power. We didn't have a great army and the like. So there are several pieces of this puzzle that we have to put together to understand our present predicament. The, uh, and so far as presidential selection is concerned, that's the first piece of the puzzle. The modern method of selection really begins only in 1972 with uh, the Democratic Party insisting that the primary system, which was an element that comes in from the progressive era of the early 20th century, is now going to be the exclusive method, basically, of selecting a president. Now, what that does is open the way for extremist presidential candidates. And yet, when you look at the candidates that have emerged during those years, they've been, for the most part, rather moderate. Completely right. Um, in fact, see, in my lifetime, the only radical that I can think of who was ever nominated uh, to a, you know, a, by a major party was Barry Goldwater. Well, um, the, uh, I think that this is fair. Um, uh, the, um, uh, what my approach in this book uh, is constitutional institution institutional. Mm -hmm. Let's just look at these institutions, see how they uh, uh, have effects. You know, 40 years is a short period of time. Um, the uh, 40 years is 10 rolls of the dice. Um, uh, the, um, uh, my point is mm -hmm. that um, uh, what the primary system does is to permit um, 20 or 30 percent of the electorate called Democrats and 20 or 30 percent uh, of the electorate called Republicans uh, to select these candidates. So first of all, and the middle doesn't participate very much. Then amongst Democrats and Republicans, it's the activists who participate. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when we think of, in this particular case, when we're just looking at current events, the Tea Party. You know, could the Tea Party movement um, uh, dominate, they could well dominate the primaries. Um, the, uh, well, you have Obama this time, who is especially now a centrist sort of fella, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, sometimes you could have two <laughs> uh, uh, non-presidents presidents who are going to run for the office. Uh, um, uh, there is this structure for extremism. And Obama himself is an indicator in that um, under the convention system, which was the dominant system of presidential selection from 1832 to 1968, Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee. Um, the, uh, and uh, notice that Obama um, uh, uh, gives his acceptance address before 70,000 screamers uh, at a football stadium. Only happened once before John F. Kennedy for various reasons, but uh, forget about what he says. This is not healthy. 
But he's so moderate. That's right. Good luck. Good luck. Don't be fooled. Good luck. You see, but this is not, we're not uh, uh, talking about people. I'm not interested in John, you, or Obama. I'm Uh interested in the institutions that make it possible. When we say that Sarah Palin or um, uh, some other person on the hard right or next time around a person on the uh, hard left has a real chance, that's a very new development and it's made much more possible by the internet um, uh, it used to be even with the default with the fall of the um, uh, convention system basically in the invisible primary the year before the primaries the leading candidates went and, and hustled for money from the established powers and tried to recruit uh, people who could, uh, uh, you know, the leaders of standard groups, Democratic state parties and the like, to recruit people who help on the polls. Mm-hmm. Now, um, as Obama and even McCain show, mm-hmm. the, the Internet is a tremendous source for activists and for funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, which, uh, which is complementary, is the rise of um, uh, media manipulators. Before 1976, um, with uh, Jimmy Carter, um, there were no media manipulators in the White House, paid professional media manipulators. Pat Cadell was the first one. Um, So we put together two things here. We put together the possibility, happily, not the reality, but really, Sarah Palin would not be a serious anxiety. Well, she's maybe going downhill right now, but a Sarah Palin-like figure would not be a serious anxiety under the convention system. Is she in a serious anxiety at this point? Well, I leave that. This is politics for you, too. Right. Uh, but someone like that, a charismatic extremist, is, can, can become a nominee. That's the key thing. Um, uh, Obama mm-hmm. is a centrist. Uh, uh, of course, we don't know, you know, it's the, after the next terrorist attack, we don't know what he's going to do. Um, uh, but uh, as uh, presidents come, he's a constitutionalist, he's a legalist, he's a centrist. Mm-hmm. Um, this is good. <laughs> and let me, yeah, and it um, makes me wonder. The, however, yeah, yeah. the first argument suggests that you shouldn't count my first argument about the primary system the media etc you shouldn't count on this second um, the uh, uh, there's not only been this great you see if we compare uh, the old system of cabinet government government yeah in which the president uh, appointed pretty independent people like Bobby Kennedy? Well, that's a special case, but... <laughs> or Alberto Gonzalez? Yes, well, well, that's, of course, more... That's, that's recent. Yeah. You see, because I do, want to say, yeah. I do want to say that... Uh, he begins as White House counsel. Uh, uh, I do want to say that um, uh, all of the things that we're going to be talking about here mm-hmm. are all modern developments. Right. 
in the, over the last 40 years, and they interact one with one another, that one should keep that in mind. So we have an extremist president claiming, let's say he's at 75% of the polls, uh, manipulating the media and saying, we have to act now. There's a crisis. It's always a crisis. We have to act now. Congress is screaming and yelling, forget about them. Then he turns not only to his very well-developed staff, who he has appointed without almost always the advice and consent of the Senate, mm -hmm. and therefore has to at least have some constraints, but they are loyalists. The Office of Legal Counsel, though, goes back to, what, the 1930s? That's right. Uh, um, what's changed about that? Why is it suddenly more, well, suddenly, well, yeah. why, why is it until the now 1960s. more dangerous than it was? Yes, until the 1960s, the uh, uh, Assistant Attorney General, who was in charge of the office, and one other was a political appointee. The other 23 were longtime civil servant lawyers. Mm -hmm. Now there's maybe two or three. Everybody is just like the White House counsel, super qualified, highly motivated, and they get there on political connections. So we now have um, uh, 65 super lawyers who understand themselves fundamentally as representatives of the president and the executive branch. Do they, in effect, become consigliaries for the president? Well, I mean, when we look at the John Yoo memos, yes. this is just a characteristic uh, exercise of, uh, of executive constitutionalism. Um, John Yoo is selected um, as a, one of the number, really number two person in the Office of Legal Counsel for his extreme conservative views. He's not confirmed. Well, he, has a, he very much embraces the idea of a, a, a powerful president. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, all, that's par for the course. They're always selected this way. Uh -huh. Then he is collaborating with people in the White House Counsel's Office, Gonzalez at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, who and they are on a team. Now, of course, under emergency conditions, they get more intimately involved with one another, mm -hmm. and they uh, uh, and you start issuing memos which were um, extreme. A few of them have been taken back, but mo notice. Well, here's one yes. you know, about John Yu. Please. One of the more interesting memos he wrote was the one that he had written two weeks after 9 11 basically arguing for a very expansive view of presidential power. Yes. And one of the precedents he cites uh, was an OLC opinion that said that John Kennedy could blockade Cuba without, Completely co right. uh, without collaborating with Congress. But this is what, the, the, uh, this is what you would expect. He, this, well, I, uh, that's why I'm emphasizing. I am not uh, uh, talking Democrat-Republican yeah. here. We see a, a bipartisan process of executive aggrandizement, and in this case, one 
Office of Legal Counsel cites the next, cites the next, and they're always expanding right. the envelope. Occasionally they retract yeah. the envelope, but notice... So even, the problem existed well before absolutely. George Bush came to office. Basically, it begins yeah. with um, the politicization of the uh, Office of Legal Counsel in the, in the Justice Department, which is, for odd reasons, really uh, accelerated by Jimmy Carter, uh, and the expansion of the White House Counsel, which begins... Uh, with Richard Nixon. And notice, that's also the time when the transformation of presidential selection is beginning. Yeah. You see, so when when Richard Nixon very famously said to a Frost on a, on a on TV show, mm-hmm. you know, when the president does it, it isn't against the law. Yeah. Presidents no longer have to say that. <laughs> they will have, except, of course, I don't deny at all the possibilities of principled lawyer saying, no, you can't do that, Mr. President. Um, I'm talking about institutions. Uh, uh, Madison said, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. We have to look and ask how these institutions are interacting with one another before we take a mature appraisal of the downside risk. the, The fundamental question is, is when we add two and two and five together, does it make one or a serious problem. And I'm, of course, saying in this book right. that it's a serious problem. And you're also saying in this book that this is more or less a contemporary problem, that it, that it just, it, it, we're talking about the last 40 years? Absolutely, which is accelerated in the last 20. And a good example of yeah. this, and this we finally get to the, the um, decline and fall empire part, uh, because, of course, um, the, um, uh, uh, after the Second World War, uh, the first year afterwards, uh, American troop levels went way down from six million to less than one hundred one million. I mean, it, we were going back to normal, um, uh, and the uh, Cold War uh, uh, precipitates this uh, this uh, standing army, which all um, uh, of the founders knew was death to the republic. Um, of a large standing army, and so did we. Uh, so did the post-war generation. We create the Defense Department. We have elaborate structures to mm-hmm. have civilian control and the like. Yeah. Uh, we become uh, an empire. Uh, we have <laughs> at least a military establishment that yeah. is prepared to intervene. Yeah. Um, uh, the uh, uh, and uh, and so the question is. Uh, have they now taken a role in domestic politics? It's an empirical question. Mm-hmm. You see, uh, in uh, the Second World War, uh, even then, the, um, the convention amongst the officer corps, the West Pointers, they, was completely depoliticized. Uh, Omar Bradley very famously told his officers they should not vote in 1944. They were not Democrats or Republicans. Um, This was, you know, this is what civilian control (laughs) meant, that you didn't think of yourself as a Democrat or Republican. By 1996, the big shift was Vietnam in this case, Uh, but but 1966, um, uh, majors and above, a public opinion survey, uh, 67% are Republicans, 7% are Democrats. Now, you know, I don't, that's not healthy. 
But if the president has become as powerful as you say he has or she has, won't that person be fully capable to standing up to the military, no matter how politicized it may or may not be? Well, there are several different scenarios um, that I trace out in, in the, um, the book. Let's imagine we have another Bush against Gore. But this time, Gore isn't such a big good sport. Um, I mean, just think back to Bush against Gore. Um, if Gore uh, had played tough, he was yeah. the president of the Senate. And he had to determine whether a piece of paper signed by uh, Bush's brother, also known as the governor of Florida, should count. Mm -hmm. Um, and instead of buckling, as he did on January 3rd, or whatever the date was, he uh, does a lot of things. There are lots of precedents that he could have used to uh, yeah. avoid this. Yeah. Would, and then January 20th comes around. Um, will the military intervene? Well, if they're politicized yeah. in the name of national security, or will the military intervene as power behind the throne, say, and look at the public opinion polls and say, this one is the one that we should have. Mm -hmm. Of course, given the fact that they're Republicans, they wouldn't be tending in that direction, but not in the Republican direction. But this is far more fundamental than which way they happen to be t tending. They're they are politicized. So that kind of thing. Second, um, if the president, uh, if an extremist president uh, is elected um, and has uh, uh, the, uh, the next John Yu generate the appropriate pieces of paper which says we can act uh, unilaterally and independent of Congress, as, and that's perfectly constitutional, will the military, how will the military decide these questions? Mm -hmm. um, so the 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 um, uh, the uh, then of course there is a secondary point which I you see for me I'm trying to direct people's attention to the uh, unhappy fact and it's a fact that we have a loaded gun here um, we're playing Russian roulette there's six cylinders you know I can't tell you what the chance is. Uh, I guess but one out of six. Yeah. One yeah. out of six. Are you more worried about the president or the military? Well, that's a beautiful question. Both. Both. We can see, and you just have to look around the world, lots of pathological scenarios yeah. in which the military and the presidency, uh, which one is boss, collaborate. If you have an extremist president, the military could end up being a constructive check. Of course. Worse yet for the future. Mm-hmm. Unless there is no future. <laughs> no, no, no. Worse, you see, the, one of the paradoxes here is that uh, Colin Powell's doctrine uh, or uh, is uh, happened to be right, and then when Mac when McNamara, when Rumsfeld tries to reassert civilian control in the de Defense Department, whatever else you want to say about uh, uh, about uh, 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 about him, and I don't have much on the merits positive to say about it. Mm -hmm. He was a civilian. What happens? There is something called the revolt of the generals. The retired generals, in collaboration with the politicized general staff, um, go public and say, get Rumsfeld out of here. Yeah. And moreover, uh, uh, by um, uh, just after the 2006 election, 
they succeed. This is a terrible precedent, even though Rumsfeld was doing a bad job. So you're saying it's a, it's a worse precedent because the military was on the right, right side. side. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And they're going to invoke it again. Look, we were, you know, the. Uh, so you don't, you don't live for the moment. Do I don't. You? I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. That's something about Yale law professors. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have a problem. But nonetheless, <laughs> you know, somebody. I mean, you know, uh, I have the greatest job in the world. I'm not uh, yeah. moaning and groaning about it at one second. But that's right. I mean, my mission in life apparently <laughs> has been to take the 250-year perspective and ask how. American institutions I'm have evolved. To figure out what's so going to happen next month. Yeah, you know, well, I right. agree, but right. I am not. The important point is that um, the um, uh, this notion of um, uh, of civilian control of the military has been weakened by bad civilian leadership. Rumsfeld, and then we had McNamara. Same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, this is kept in not only in the military mind. Uh, but in the public mind. Mm. Uh, Colin Powell is viewed for various and sundry reasons as a leading statesman. And, um, uh, and how did he get there? I can tell you every aspiring general knows how he got there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he mm-hmm. got there by intervening in politics. In, in 1992, um, uh, he uh, wrote an op-ed uh, uh, during the election uh, in the New York Times telling Bill Clinton, you listen to the Powell Doctrine. What did Bill Clinton do? He uh, heard uh, and he said, hey, um, hey, what do you say about um, um, becoming Secretary of State? Powell said no. Mm-hmm. But he saw that he, want, he Bill Clinton wanted to preempt him from running against him in 1996. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this is interesting. Then Bill Clinton uh, takes Shalishkashvili. I apologize to no, him. That's good. Uh, uh, you pull that off. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't from uh, he didn't take him from one of the existing chiefs. Yeah. He took him from the next level because he was going to support his views. Um, the so this uh, now the, that general I'm not going to say it again his name again uh, was perfectly fine I mean you know but uh, what we are seeing is the um, uh, legitimation of the pol- uh, a politicized military mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and then we have a number of scenarios in which at a crisis real or imagined or precipitated by an extremist. You you say you worry about the next 250 years, but so much of your writing has been about the past 200. And I know that uh, uh, it's a hazardous exercise to try to draw lessons from history. Uh, But it seems to me, and I'm thinking of your own uh, books here, uh, the We the People series, Uh, there is the sense that, uh, you know, in response to a crisis, the presidency expands and then more normal times return and the president's power contracts and the system does, at least in the the past it did, seem to uh, exhibit an ability to self-correct. Yes. And so why can't, and you're saying we can't take comfort from that historical record? I'm trying to point to these institutional factors 
the way presidents are selected, how they manipulate media, how they have a politicized bureaucracy, how they are now interacting with a politicized military, mm-hmm. how they are systematically more popular than Congress, how the notion of an emergency has uh, proliferated. Uh, all of these things are developments of the last 40 years. This is at the same. This is not Richard Nixon's presidency. It's much more dangerous than Richard Nixon's presidency. And God bless Obama for all the talk about, you know, he's a socialist, etc. This person is a is the, is the sort of person we've lucked out, judicious, not an extremist, mm-hmm. but he is not taking corrective action. Mm-hmm. He's not taking corrective action. And one understands why, especially now uh, with the Republicans uh, uh, in charge of the House, um, he's going to take the path of Bill Clinton, who greatly increased the power of the central White House staff to control the administration and politicize, as I helped politicize the military, as I was just suggesting. Um, the um, And more and more precedents are accumulating for the downside. The downside. When you say corrective action, would it require a president asserting his power uh, in an imperial way to make those corrections? Well, I don't think so. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the happy side of the book is, uh, uh, well, the, I, you know, the, the first and most important point is uh, learning from history, uh, um, uh, uh, there is uh, the potential for a tragedy. Uh, Watergate, Iran-Contra, the war on Bush's illegalities, these could be the prelude for something much worse because the institutional mechanisms for authoritarian presidentialism are much more developed and they are increasing now so than now, they were 40 years, years ago. 40 years ago. Well, let me read you something Please. Teddy Roosevelt said in 1909. Yes. And I can't imagine Bush even in his most grandiose state of mind saying this. He said, quote, the biggest matters such as the Portsmouth peace, the acquisition of Panama, and sending the fleet around the world, I managed without consultation with anyone. For when a matter is of capital importance, it is well to have it handled by one man. Isn't that an expression of presidential power that's at least equal to anything Richard I'm not talking about expressions. Well, didn't he? I'm talking about capacity. Didn't he have the capacity? Well, not much. He could send the fleet around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the uh, not much. Uh, he big uh, stick, you know. Well, that's but but uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the the the. It's absolutely right. What we have yeah. is this. 200-year development, which we were talking about before, in which uh, the president as a tribune of the people, despite the the determined efforts by the founders not to let that happen, has happened. And this movement party presidency, which at the present time is more obvious right now, in this moment in time, on the right, Mm -hmm. with the 
movement party presidency. The Tea Party is nothing special. We have a labor movement party presidency in the uh, Roosevelt period. We have the abolitionist Republican Party presidency. This Jeffersonian, you know, these movements from the country through a party and the president saying it's a new era. This is nothing new. It's the institutional apparatus mm-hmm. that's new. Um, and, and that's what's alarming. That's absolutely the core of the book, and that's why we need to make institutional changes. So, for example, mm-hmm. we should uh, uh, have, uh, it's really, you know, here we have um, uh, the president who's supposed to, uh, 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 under the Constitution, meaning the text, is charged uh, uh, that he... Uh, faithfully execute the laws. The laws, not what he wants. Yeah. The laws. He has an in, the institutional framework for telling the president what the law is is radically defective, unconstitutional. Just think about it. The question is, let's say, uh, whether uh, when Congress uh, passes a law, as it did, saying don't torture, what, whether the president has the authority to ignore it. This decision is made without hearing arguments on both sides. There are not, there's, uh, this is, this decision is made by uh, a person who doesn't imagine himself to be a judge. Um, he imagines himself to be, you know, speaking for the presidency and not even considering both sides of the argument. Well, is that any different, though, than when, say, Franklin Roosevelt turned to his AG to get an opinion from him supporting... On on, Well, before the giving away of all those, the the 50 used uh, battleships. Yeah, I mean, basically, he was uh, conducting an undeclared war in the North Atlantic. Completely right. This was uh, the beginning. Robert Jackson, who is uh, the uh, uh, attorney general, was the very beginning of this. We now have... Not Robert Jackson. We have an institutional operation here. Yeah. Producing pieces of paper. And you're quite right that when you hear the apologists of executive constitutionalism uh, talk, they go back to Robert Jackson. But that doesn't mean that this is good. Right. But what we need is yeah. an institutional solution. So I proposed in this uh, a book a Supreme Executive Tribunal uh, of nine judges in the executive branch. We've had uh, 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 Article Two courts for this a long time. Uh, uh, proposed, each serving for, for 12 years, uh, so each president uh, nominates three, confirmed by the Senate. Uh, there is a council for the presidency. Uh, I would prefer that that be abolished and we go back to the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, the president needs lawyers. Congress, when they see that the president is doing something that they believe to be outside the scope of the pre- of the statutory authority, but it has not, but the Supreme Court's going to either declare it a political question or there isn't standing, mm-hmm. can uh, the president can act on the advice of his lawyers, but the lawyers are going to have to defend this before this Supreme Executive Tribunal, which will, after hearing the arguments on both sides, state what the law is. 
then. Later on, the Supreme Court can get back, get into the act when they're standing. Uh, and indeed, I think this would encourage the Supreme Court to get into the act more often. This is an institutional solution mm-hmm. to a pathology. Um, similarly, um, let's take media manipulation. Uh, I mean, I, there's no one-size-fits-all problem here. Yeah. Uh, there are, the, 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 this historical institutional approach says, look, there's problems from presidential selection to the military. I, let's, I'll go to the military just for one minute. We should have a canon of ethics for, the milita- for military officers, like for judges. They don't have one. Mm-hmm. They should actually talk about what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate to do. They should study. I, I commend Mullen, uh, who is the uh, uh, president and head of the chief of staff. I don't, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, for the first time, he held a one-day session on the ethos of the military, and they talked about the revolt of the generals. Was that appropriate? That's great. Mm-hmm. We should have, uh, just as we have, more elaborate, I think, uh, a uh, code of uh, judicial ethics, canons. We should have one for high milita- for military officers. Uh, this is not taught in the, at West Point. We should have case studies. I'm not so, I don't care so much about how they draw the line. Um, but they should actually seriously think about that. Um, so as you as you perceptively noted from the beginning, I'm uninterested in people. <laughs> I mean, it's my you know. Right. I love my wife. Right, right. But I but but people is it's not the institution of marriage. You're more concerned about. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but I but you know the 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 the, the, the we have to. But I'm wondering, you know, I've heard the, you this, talk about yeah. these sure. uh, proposals before, and sure. you use the word band aids to describe them, and I wonder if that's a. Something of an acknowledgement that if, uh, well, let me read to you a quote from uh, uh, Stephen Griffin. He critiqued your book in the blogosphere. Right. And he wrote, uh, Stephen Griffin, by the way, is a University of Tulane Law School uh, uh, professor. Very thoughtful person. Very thoughtful. He said, before we accuse the presidency of being dangerous, we should face the consequences of global and militarized foreign policy that the U.S. has pursued since the Second World War. The essence of our Difficulty is not particular to the executive branch or attributable to presidents with malign intent. It is properly linked with the radically new tasks the executive and legislative branches were asked to perform, particularly in foreign affairs in the post-war world. This kind of brings me back to the question right. of, you know, whether we are an empire or not, yes. and if in fact it's our place in the world that has led to a dangerous presidency. Then it seems to me that the uh, reforms that you're suggesting, as well considered as they may be, will have at best only a limited effect. Life is a band-aid. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there's no, there's no such thing. As a, I mean, you know, we're talking about government here. The idea that mm-hmm. uh, that we're going to have the perfect government is fanciful. Uh, so we uh, there's a down, there's a serious downside danger. Um, is the downside danger exacerbated by the perceived imp- un- uh, understanding of uh, that we have to have a permanent and large military? Yes, it is. Um, it is uh, uh, increased. Um, uh, I. This is not a book about Bruce Ackerman's foreign policy. 
This is a book, actually, however naive, uh, that's appealing to thoughtful Americans. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, of course, it's another argument uh, uh, whether we should become, uh, 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 whether our foreign policy is over-militarized and the like. I want to say that however you come out on that one, um, the, uh, there is, if we have an, uh, a standing army of a million or a million and a half, um, we still have this problem. Um, I also want to say that even if we reduced the, our military to a much smaller level, we would still have this problem. It wouldn't be as serious um, because we have an activist, regulatory, welfare state. Now, if you say, let's go to, back to 1825, <laughs> well, then we wouldn't have this problem. We would have big talkers like Tom, uh, Teddy Roosevelt or, uh, from time to time, and he would pound his chest and send the army around, and maybe he'd uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, try to uh, seize the Panama Canal, but uh, I don't, uh, he, he still needs, uh, but, um, uh, but then it wouldn't be much of a problem. But yeah. we um, have a very serious problem. There is a significant chance that it will, by chance, episodes of persons and elections and crises, uh, the, our system of government will spin out of control. Precedents are accumulating that facilitate this. Um, uh, we should do something about it. Now, I have my own band-aids, but of course, at the end of the day, there isn't, we're not going to reduce the risk to zero, <laughs> mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. How am I to read this book juxtaposed against the books you've written in the past, like your We the, we the People books, yes. which celebrate the power of the presidency, it seems to me, to a certain extent. Uh, you argue that the presidency uh, uh, representing the will of the people champions uh, that will uh, against the elitists, against the reactionaries, against the, the constitutional formalists. Uh, and I was led to believe, reading those books, that th that was a good thing, uh, yes. more often than not. So have you created, have liberals, have progressives to a large extent, uh, since I, uh, liberals and progressives were very much involved in that project, uh, have they created a monster? Well, it's, um, let me put it this way. Uh, what didn't the founders um, foresee? Quite a few things. Didn't foresee a party system, and therefore couldn't foresee how the party system would transform the presidency into a highly partisan branch. They thought the House of Representatives was going to right. speak for the people, not the presidency. Didn't foresee bureaucracy. Didn't foresee the rise of the military. Didn't foresee the... Uh, uh, politics of unreason manipulated by scientists, media m merchants of unreason. Scientifically. This is distressing because I heard Michelle Bachman say on more than one occasion that these founding fathers were infallible. So this is, yes. this is concern. This is, this a, is, well, this is you upsetting. Know, who do you believe? <laughs> the, uh, so, right, the, um, uh, 
for all of these failures of anticipation. This is perfectly understandable. You know, you're going to tell me, you know, what's mm-hmm. America going to be like in uh, 2300, Bruce? Um, the um, uh, they um, the amazing thing about the American experience, as you were pointing out, is that despite this, these failures of perfectly understandable for failures of uh, uh, of uh, divine omniscience, <laughs> Americans have adapted their institutions time and again, uh, and they sort of worked to ex- vindicate. Generation after generation, the thought that we still have control over our government. Uh, now, what I'm understanding is uh, that, um, and this is why I think that this turn to originalism is so profoundly unwise. Mm. It, it, the reason why we still have a constitution of 1787 is by virtue of the creative institutional ingenuity of every generation of Americans adapting, changing. Yeah. You mentioned originalism. Uh, I can't help feeling when I read your books that originalism is either incredibly, the the kind of originalism that Justice Scalia espouses, it's either uh, incredibly naive or intellectually dishonest. Is, is, Is that overly harsh? Is that an overly harsh reading? Or am I... Well, uh, reading certainly, this, reading your books right. Certainly, um, uh, uh, a great deal of originalism is based on um, ignorance, just plain historical ignorance. Um, uh, Justice the, Scalia is a bright man. He's, he's yes, said but so of on course, many occasions. Of, <laughs> but of course, the question is not Justice Scalia. He can't do it by himself. He, ha- the, he has to, uh, he doesn't have time, actually, uh, to uh, know, recreate for himself the world of the founders or the world of Reconstruction. Um, uh, the, uh, there's this, uh, uh, we need historian for that. And what originalist historians are, are um, narrow, look at a very small amount of uh, holy writ without nearly the, uh, the uh, 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 thoughtfulness of great historians like Bernard Bailet uh, or Eric Foner. Uh, so we have this kind of little machine that uh, is constructing a legal fictional world um, uh, uh, which uh, uh, fuels the Scalia's. Justice Scalia was actually on our program a few months ago, and he generated a little national publicity when we asked him a very leading question about the 14th Amendment, Mm -hmm. and he responded that, yes, justices did go astray when they read into the 14th Amendment uh, a prohibition against gender discrimination. But it seems to me, in in a funny kind of way, you actually go further than Justice Scalia because you refer to the Reconstruction Amendments, which include the 13th and 15th, as well as the 14th, as amendment simulacra, right? Because they were not proposed and ratified in the way that the pro- Constitution prescribes. That's right. Does that, in some sense, I mean, people reading that, I think, could 
logically conclude that they're second-class amendments for that And reason. indeed, the, um, the, the Republican Party uh, of Lincoln and, uh, and uh, Thaddeus Stevens was a vanguardist party. Yeah. Was way ahead of public opinion. We shouldn't be so surprised. The normal constitutional story is, oh, look how, t- how the uh, egalitarian impulse of these amendments faded away in the late 19th century, Plessy against Ferguson, and even worse in yeah. the early 20th century. There wasn't I even say, close to a popular man. I for, say yeah. that it's the civil rights revolution of the 1960s mm. that are, is the origination of the mm. modern commitment to equality in this country, and that we should if we're going to be originalists, um, uh, look at what were the principles of equality expressed in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Justice Scalia is even contemplating the idea that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act on employment discrimination is unconstitutional Mm -hmm. under the 19th century texts. This is to get things just backwards. It was the uh, Martin Luther King and Lyndon Johnson and later on even Richard Nixon who led the American people to a bipartisan, broad-ranging, we the people affirmation that we're going to take racial, gender equality uh, seriously. And it's that which sets us up for our modern constitutional law. Let me, we're almost out of time. I want sure. to ask you one last question. Uh, apart from the question it's of whether we'll... It's been a pleasure talking to you. I yeah, it's been fun. Well, we, could do another two, we could do another three hours of this. Um, apart from the question of whether we can survive as a republic, there's the more general question, are we in decline? And as, as, a, as a cultural power, as a military power, as a, uh, an economic power, and there are any number of statistics that people cite to make that case. In fact, I thought I heard one rather telling statistic that uh, President Obama made during his State of the Union. He pointed out that 25% of our students uh, are not graduating high school. That, that doesn't portend a good outcome for us. Uh, so what I'm wondering, though, is let's assume for the moment that we are in decline and that decline is irreversible. Given the structure of the government that we have, are we as equipped to, say, have as graceful a decline as Great Britain had when it was able to keep its democracy even though it lost its empire? Well, I do think that this is a a fundamental uh, question. Of course, um, I'm actually uh, not so... I mean, obviously we're declining, but I wouldn't... uh, overstate Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the rate of our uh, relative uh, decline uh, from world hegemon to merely great power or something of this kind. you know, when I walk into my uh, uh, class at Yale, there are students from all around the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and they're, uh, it's hard to get in, and they're eager mm-hmm. uh, students. Uh, um, the, uh, uh, and, uh, well, we can go uh, down, down the line. But you're quite right that um, uh, the, um, if, as I'm suggesting, 
the perception of crisis is a terribly significant real or imagined crisis is is a, is a, 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 a great motor of presidential authoritarianism as well as extremist reactions to our so-called decline, um, then our system is vulnerable, makes uh, the management of decline a, a trickier business than the management of ascent. We've had a century of ascent, <laughs> um, uh, and now, uh, uh, and which we have more or less been winning. <laughs> uh, now we have a century in which we're not going to be lo- losing, but we're going to have problems beyond our control, scapegoating people Mm -hmm. more um, uh, uh, screaming and yelling at one another. The structures that I'm describing uh, uh, um, interact with this kind of, these psychological pathologies of perceiving that there is, we have less influence than we once had in a very bad way, Mm -hmm. in a very bad way. Um, But um, uh, I've been wrong before. (laughs) <laughs> On that note, Bruce Ackerman, it was a, such a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you See very you much. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.